last weekend of spring break, hey? The, the kids are gone, so we can't hear them moan over that. We have a few youth. I'm sure they're not looking forward to going back to school tomorrow. But all good things must come to an end. But not our sermon series, because we're right in the middle of our sermon series right now. Hopefully you can count it as a good thing. I certainly have been enjoying what we've been walking through the past couple of weeks. And today we're going to continue that. And the series, if you're new with us, is as we're leading into the Easter weekend, we're following the last days of Jesus. And, and it's, a, it's a time of the calendar year that these different days are referred to as his Passion Week. And during this week, we find some of his most profound teachings and demonstrations of love that he expressed towards people. And we're walking through those throughout the uh, weeks leading up to Easter. Today, we find ourselves on Wednesday. We're kind of halfway to, the, uh, to uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And here we find an account that is recorded in all four Gospels. Now, each Gospel account gives us a little bit different details as they share this story. But one thing they all hold in common is that all of these different accounts, even though they're shared four times, show up with Jesus being a polarizing figure. That means he's one person who is seen by different people through different lenses, and they come to different conclusions about who this one individual is. Now, this might be a familiar concept to us in different areas of our lives, and help you to understand what I mean, um, just a couple of variety of examples for you. Now, I'm sure some of you will remember back in 2015 when the dress broke the internet. Remember that? Back a couple years ago. Now, I've always been baffled by this, and if you're not familiar with this, the story is uh, somebody, uh, a lady had posted this dress to the internet, and a debate all of a sudden erupted over what color this dress is, which to me sounds crazy, because I look at the dress, and I think it's white and gold. And there's some people who chuckle, because they're like, what are you talking about? It's black and blue, right? (laughs) Hence the debate. So I've always wondered, I always want to have a room full of people and do a poll. So who are the white and gold people that are with me on this one? Okay, and now us white and gold people are shocked we're in the minority because how many black and blue? A whole lot more. (laughs) And so hence the reason the internet broke for a little while (laughs) as this debate erupted online. Uh, Interesting thing, one dress, polarizing item though, different opinions on it, and you're all thinking each other are crazy. (laughs) What's wrong with her eyes? Well, it actually sparked a question and a bit of a, a research that revealed differences on human color perception. But not only this, there's other examples of items that can be polarizing. For example, we have our Edmonton Oilers. Ooh, yes. Because for a number of years, you either were a huge fan or you could really care less and just criticize them. But we have made the playoffs, and all of a sudden, this phenomenal phenomenon happens called jumping on the bandwagon has taken place. And so these polarizing team has all of a sudden cause some unity to start happening within the city. We also see other polarizing things, polarizing figures, uh, politicians for sure, can be polarizing. Uh, I don't need to list off a long example. There's probably one very, very obvious polarizing figure that happens in the world right now. Uh, If I say the name Donald Trump, people have an immediate opinion, and they will not all be the same. There will be definite, strong camps on either side of that issue. But here's the thing about polarizing figures is those opinions change. Now, one of the best examples of this was George Bush, who a number of years back, remember George Bush Jr., had uh, uh, an opinion poll rating of 57%. So fairly low for a president. 
And then 9-11 happened, and within a couple of days, he jumped from 57 to 87 in a very, very short period of time. You see, so our views on things can change. Uh, And this actually happens, we see this happen throughout Jesus' ministry as well, where over his three and a bit years that he he was in public ministry, people's views and change over what they thought of him. Now, early on in his ministry, he starts out preaching and teaching, and, and, and people start saying to themselves, he is one who teaches with authority. But then they have this other thought in their mind going, but isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the son of a carpenter? And, and so they had the sense of disbelief. A little later on, the crowds start to build. They start to get a little larger crowds following him. They are, they are amazed with his teachings and with his miracles. But then as he continues to teach over time, he starts saying some hard things. And he starts adding that there's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to following him. And people start to fall away. Now, still later, these groups have started to solidify as he nears the end of his life, the end of his ministry. And as these groups solidify, we find that there are those who are very deeply, devoutly committed to him, who are quite close. There are those a little further out who are curious. And then there are those also at former camp who just absolutely despise him at this point. And when we come to our passage today in Mark 14, and if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to that passage in Mark 14, verse 1 through 11 we'll be looking at. We see these three groups represented in this story today. Those who are devout, those who are following, and those who despise him. Now, Jesus knew this was happening. And we have some evidence of that where just a short time earlier as he's meeting with his disciples and in what was essentially a kind of a quiet time of them removed from the crowds. He looks at them all one day, and and he simply says to them, who do people say that I am? Now, he's not asking for his opinion poll. He's not looking for the stats and the numbers. It's really a question of identity. Who do people say that I am? Now, in response to that, his followers say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, Others say you must be Elijah, and yet others are saying that you're some prophet from the long ago who has been resurrected and has come back. Really what they're saying is we really don't know. People really don't know who you are. And and, and what they were sharing actually was a sort of the word going around in different circles that this is what people were saying, but it comes down to it. They really, people really weren't too sure who he was. So he asked those closest to him. He asked those who really should know those who had walked with him for a couple of years at this point and had seen the most and heard the most and witnessed the most, he says, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's a spokesman for the group, simply declares, you're the Messiah. But who do you say Jesus is? Who do we say he is today? You know, and as we approach Easter and we examine our lives in light of his sacrifice for us, there really isn't any more important question for us to ask ourselves. Because how we answer that question, who do we say Jesus is, will affect every area of our lives, now and for all of eternity. So as we turn to our passage today, we're going to see some examples of how this gets lived out and unpacked in some of these different crowds, these different opinions that have been polarized around the person of Jesus. And so as the passage opens in in, uh, Mark chapter 14, we're told that this is a time when Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was just a couple of days away. 
And we're told that the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. Our first group. You see, Passover was one night that happened actually during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Originally, they were two separate things. But, but kind of like how we've taken Advent and Christmas and, and made them one thing because they're so closely related and they happen on the calendar and thematically are close together. The, these two separate things have become essentially in one. And they held a common purpose. They, they reminded Israel of God's faithfulness to them in the past. They reminded them of his promises that God had made to them and also of his provisions for them, in particular around their liberation from Egypt when, when Moses went to Pharaoh and, and the people were set free. Now, here we are at this time of Passover and people are flooding into Jerusalem. And many of these pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem are coming with hope that this deliverance that was modeled for them generations earlier would be a model that would repeat itself in the present time and bring about their final liberation. So as people come into the city, there's this expectation that the Messiah could appear during Passover and would finally arrive and deliver them from oppression and deliver them from the economic hardships in which they had been living. Now the religious leaders had a growing desire to kill Jesus. They were determined to do so, especially after what had happened just a couple days earlier on Monday. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about on Monday when Jesus goes to the Temple Mount and he starts turning tables over and challenging the whole temple system. And so they had already been plotting at that point, but now they were definitely even more determined that something had to be done. And in answer to this question, who do they say Jesus is, their answer is, he's a threat. He threatens everything that we stand for. He jeopardizes our way of life. We, he's highly agitated them by his teachings and by his threats to the temple. But they couldn't do anything immediately and publicly because they feared the people. Many people thought Jesus was about to start something. When he entered Jerusalem, they thought, this is where it starts. Jesus is about to start something. It's just a matter of days. And see, the population of Jerusalem quadrupled during this time. And it was this season of nationalistic pride and nationalistic focus where there was this desire for liberation. And if the religious leaders were going to keep the power that Rome had given them, because the only power they had was what Rome allowed them to have, and if they were going to maintain their authority over these people, especially during this time of year, they would have to do something peacefully. They'd have to keep the streets peaceful. They'd have to do it quietly perhaps in the dead of night. And so while all this is going on, this is the atmosphere in which Jesus finds himself, we, we actually find Jesus back in Bethany. He's presently back in Bethany enjoying a formal meal at the house of Simon the leper. Now, we don't know really who Simon is, nor does Mark actually provide any details of anybody who's present at this dinner. We don't even know if Simon is still a leper. We don't know if he's called Simon the leper because it's a friend of Jesus who has leprosy. Or it's a friend of Jesus who used to have leprosy, but Jesus healed him. But they look at him and go, hey, that's Simon. Remember, he used to have leprosy, so he's Simon the leper. We don't know even the case of what's going on with him. In fact, there's no personal details shared for anybody in this story. Because Mark's focus is not upon who was there. It's not upon how high esteemed was this guest list at this party. His focus is upon what they did. It's on the actions of the people that took place during this dinner party. Now, what we do know is that Jesus was among friends, and he was among followers, and he was enjoying a relaxing meal with these people. This would have been a setting for a formal dinner. 
It would have been taking place most likely in the late afternoon, and, and they would be sitting on very plush cushions that were on the ground with, with a low table, so they could kind of recline on one elbow with, with their legs kind of stretched out at these low cushions and low table. And we also know that it was customary that, that only men would be gathered around this table and enjoying this meal. But during this dinner, an anonymous woman breaks cultural norm and comes into the room carrying something. And as she comes into the room, she's, she's carrying a flask. And they can see that it's kind of off-white in color, but it, it's decorated ornately. And from the size of it, they, you can guess it holds about half a liter of liquid. And it's got a long neck on the end of it with a sealed top to preserve whatever the contents are inside. Now, those who see her enter carrying this flask would, would most likely know that it contained perfume or some sort of oil. Because in the hot, dry climate of the ancient world, it was customary to pour oil or perfume over the heads of your guests. That's something that they would do. It was, it was considered an act of honor that a host would bestow upon his guests at a dinner party. But it also had other meaning. Because in Jewish culture, they would also use, use perfumes and oils and pour them over the heads of kings during inauguration ceremonies. And they would anoint their new kings in a similar fashion as these, these mixtures of, of fragrant mixtures we poured over their heads. They also had traditions where if, if they came across a sacred item or, or a, a sacred person, they would also anoint them in similar fashion where they would pour these fragrant mixtures and oils and perfumes over their head and symbolizing that this person was being set apart for the purposes of God. Now Mark doesn't tell us really what this woman's motives are. We, we don't know what her motives are in this passage. We only know of her extravagant act of devotion towards Jesus. Because as she enters the room carrying this flask, she breaks the jar and she pours the perfume over his head. Now, she doesn't, she doesn't take the cap off as though to, to pour some and then put it back on the shelf. She breaks the neck on the bottle and pours the contents in its entirety over top of Jesus' head. And as she does that, you can imagine that instantly the room is filled with this, this sweet fragrance, this sweet, pleasant fragrance. And also, considering the volume of half a liter of perfume that she used, that, that the room is not just immediately filled, but the whole house, and even it probably wafts into the streets as people can smell this perfume. Uh, it, it's probably similar to walking through the mall when you approach one of those soap stores that I don't know how you work inside those things. I can't walk by them without gagging, let alone going inside of them. Now, I can walk by a Cinnabon. I can walk by that. <laughs> Makes my teeth hurt. But I can walk by a Cinnabon. A- anyways, this is no cheap kind of dollar store variety fragrance. This isn't just spraying some Febreze in the room. This is like taking a bottle of Chanel, smashing it so that the fragrance goes throughout, and you can instantly tell that this is very expensive perfume that she's used. In fact, we're told that it is. The description tells us that it's pure nard that is used to make this perfume. And, and, and pure nard is, uh, is in reference to an uh, aromatic oil that's extracted from herbs from countries like India and Nepal. So the extraction process happens there, and it was imported a long distance. It has an estimated value of around 300 denarii. Now, we don't really know what a denarii is, but, but to do some math for you, that's the equivalent to about a year's wages for a laborer very significant amount of money for these people who are watching this take place. Now, we don't know if she saw Jesus as a king. 
We don't know if she's trying to start something by, by pronouncing him as the Messiah, as a sacred person put aside for God's purposes. But what we do know is this. We do know that out of her deep love and devotion, she took what she had and she used it for Jesus' honor. She wasn't the host of the party who was coming to anoint a guest head. She hadn't been asked by the host to come and do this. She did this of her own volition. She didn't just remove the cap and sprinkle some behind his ears or dab some on his neck. She took that bottle, she broke the neck, never to be sealed again, and gave of the totality of this gift that she had towards Jesus. And her example reveals a follower of Jesus Christ who we could say is all in. This is a person who has jumped in with both feet. When I hear that phrase, jumped in with both feet, I remember back when I was younger, when, it, when our kids were little, and around springtime like this, it would start raining. And when that rain stopped, you'd look out the window and survey and plot the puddles that are out there. If you get your boot and your coats on, you might walk up to the first one and do a little kind of toe-tap splash just to test the depth. But it doesn't take long before those kids can't help themselves anymore. And it's not long until they are two-legged, flying through the air, fully committed into the deepest puddle to make the biggest splash possible. Now, there's other people around in the room watching this go on, watching this woman make her big splash. But they didn't join in. Instead, they did something different. Instead, they started grumbling to themselves about what they saw taking place. Now, the other Gospels tell us that these people who were at the dinner party were also followers of Jesus, who who are observing this and begin to grumble. And as they talk about it, they feel that her act is actually a form of injustice that's been done. And we're told that some of those who were present uh, were saying to one another, why, why this waste of perfume? You know, they, they became indignant with the fact that she had done this. They're, they're beside themselves going, what a waste. There's such a better use for something so extravagant. Like surely it could have been, I don't know, we, we could have sold it. We, we could have sold it and we could have given the money to the poor. Or better yet, this is a time of feasting. This is a time of festival. We could have sold it, taken that money, and we could have fed like over 7,000 people, literally, with the value of this perfume. Now, in fairness to these guys, we have no reason here to question their care and their respect for Jesus. That's not the thing in question here. Actually, their, their responses are somewhat reasonable given other teachings that they've experienced. You see, they would be familiar with the biblical teaching from back in Deuteronomy 15, where it talked about how people should give generously and should give joyfully to the unfortunate who are around you. It was also in their culture customary to be generous to the poor, in particular during seasons of festival. And, well, Passover is one of the biggest festivals, and you're supposed to be especially generous and give bigger gifts during this particular time of year. And let's not forget that if we flip back just four chapters in the book of Mark, the young rich ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? And Jesus says, sell everything, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. So we do want to be careful to be not too hard on these guys' initial response. Because their issue is not with Jesus. Their issue is with this woman's act, which has become polarizing to them. And the conclusion they draw from what they've witnessed and what they've heard in the past, the conclusion they draw is that Jesus does not need such extravagance. That Jesus would rather share with the poor 
then pour this down the drain. So there's two cases being made in what's happening here. And while all of this is going on, it's resolved. Because for the first time in this series of events, Jesus speaks. And when he speaks, he reveals to everybody in the room that he cherishes this woman's devotion. And he starts defending her. He says to them, leave her alone. Like, why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. He's telling his followers who are objecting to this woman, basically, knock it off. Like, back off. Just just leave, quit giving her a hard time. And it's significant, the phrase that Jesus uses here, this phrase, beautiful thing. Because what that literally means is she has done a good work. Now, now good work, it means different in, in our culture than it did back then. There is a distinction in their culture between alms, which are which were essentially niceties or little things you would give to the poor, that were almsgiving, and then there were good works. And, and the good works he's referring to here are, these, are, these, uh, are considered these religious duties, the, these highly elevated services that are offered in a religious sense. An act that is highly honorable deed done to a person. And then he continues to, he conf- affirms their concern for the poor, But he draws their attention to something else. Because he says to them, guys, you're always going to have the poor with you. You can serve the poor anytime you want to. But you're not always going to have me. Now, as he says that, it's not a disparaging comment against poverty. He's not saying, don't bother with the poor. You'll never solve poverty, so don't even bother trying. You're always going to have the poor. That's not what he's saying. He has a deep concern for the poor. We see that throughout the Gospel of Luke in particular, this concern for those who are on the fringes of society. And as Jesus has a heart for those people, we should have a heart for those people as well as we look at our ministries and how we use our resources and our time. That's not what he's getting at. The point that he's making is a statement about time because time is short. This is Wednesday, and he knows Friday is coming. He knows time is short, that they will not always have him with them. And that they need to do what they can while there's still time. And he praised this anonymous woman for just that. In a very simple phrase. He says, she did what she could. She did what she could. A simple but profound statement. That she saw what she had. And she put it to use. Now there's no evidence that she understands the prophetic aspect of what she's done. There's no sense that, that her anointing was, was anything more than an act of devotion and honor to Jesus. But he fills in the blanks for everybody in the room. When he says, she did what she could. What did she do? She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare, prepare me for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see, there's a Jewish custom here as well where, where a deceased person would be, would be taken and prepared and anointed with oils. And loved ones would come do this as, as a form of care and honor to the one who has passed. There's also a bit of a public service aspect of anointing dead bodies with oil, but that was a separate issue. The only people who wouldn't receive that care were criminals. Because criminals wouldn't receive the care and the honor that another person would. Now, we don't know for sure, but there seems to be some sense that Jesus knew the type of suffering he was about to endure. 
because in just a few days he would be crucified like a criminal. He would be taken down from the cross before there was time to prepare his body and he would be whisked away into a stranger's borrowed tomb. Now a couple of days later, some of these women after the Passover and after the Sabbath had happened, these these women would come and they would try then to anoint to prepare Jesus' body, but it would be too late because by Easter money, he was no longer there. And we'll celebrate that in two weeks here ourselves. There was no time to anoint him at that point. And without even knowing it, this woman, this anonymous woman at this dinner party has actually begun that process, the burial process, through her act of devotion. And she serves as as an example and a testimony of all who wish to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so as we consider the devotion of this woman 2,000 years later, her actions prompt us to ask ourselves a question. The question really that was put on the table that evening between this woman and the other followers, how much is too much for Jesus? How much is too much? That seems to have been one of the issues that they're wrestling with. They may not have phrased it that way, but their actions kind of reveal that that's a question. How much is too much? A nice meal? A little oil? Maybe a dab of expensive perfume? That should be okay. But the whole bottle? The whole jar in its entirety? That, that just seems too extravagant for these guys. But when we look closer at Jesus' response, we see that the issue is different. Jesus isn't concerned about the dollar value. It's not the dollar value he's focusing upon. He's focusing upon something that I'd want to refer to as the attributed value. The attributed value, which in economics is a way of saying, uh, or answering the question, how much is stuff really worth? Now, often the answer is, well, whatever someone's willing to pay for it is the attributed value, is what it's worth. And Nadine and I have been going through this the last little while as we prepare to sell our house and move to the West End here. We, we need to find a price to attach to our house. And so we go through this process of, of considering uh, talking to an agent and what do they recommend. We look at the city assessments. We, we consider what we initially purchased the house for. We also have to ask our question relative to the market right now, what are people willing to pay? And based upon this assessment, we arrive at a price. And that's kind of what the disciples are doing here. They're looking at that value. They're looking at the dollars and cents. They're saying, well, it costs this much. And and from a dollars and cents economic perspective, what's the best use of what's happening here? But Jesus draws their attention to something else. In Jesus' response, he kind of rephrases the question for them. Instead of asking somebody, what is the market value of their house? It's kind of like asking somebody who has lived in a house for more than a generation, what the value of their house is. Now, that's a different question. Because a person might go, I, I don't know. Like, this is, this is the threshold that I carried my bride through. This is the place where my kids were born and where they started to walk and talk. This is the kitchen where they were always riddled with Cheerios. The living room was always filled with Lego. This is the door frame that every few months we kind of measure their height. And my son and I planted that tree in the backyard, and now it's just full of foliage, and it covers half the yard. This is the room where we watched the Oilers win the cup in 2017. <laughs> yeah. This is where we watched the Riders blow the cup with 13 men on the field a couple years ago. Football season's coming. Rider jokes are getting warmed up. 
this is the room where, where our son broke the news to us. This is where we gathered after mom's passing. What's the value that I attach to this place? It's invaluable. How could I possibly find a number? It's everything to me. And so when we look at this simple phrase that Jesus says to these guys, he says she did what she could. She did what she could in light of her attributed value of Jesus in her life. And after she made the calculation, expensive perfume, immeasurably valuable Jesus, she gave in totality to him. You see, it wasn't about the dollar value. It was about the attributed value. Because not always about dollars and cents. And we see that in another example where just, just literally hours, you know, a day and a half or so earlier when Jesus was sitting on the temple mount and saw a poor widow come and drop two coins into the temple treasury. Two copper coins. And as he watched her do that, he declares to all who are watching, she has given more than all others. Because you guys all gave out of your wealth. But she put in everything. And so what did this wealthy, anonymous woman and the poor widow have in common? They looked at what they had. And out of their devotion to Jesus, they did what they could. And they held nothing back. This woman's extravagance donation stands as an example for all disciples as we consider our response to Jesus. As we consider the answer to the question, who do you say Jesus is? How you answer that will determine how you respond and our acts of devotion. And she stands as an example of how a disciple who is all in should respond. But she also stands in stark contrast to one of the disciples in particular. Because we finish looking at this passage for today, we find that it says this in verse 10. Then Judas, one of the twelve, went out to the chief priests and betrayed Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this. And they promised to give him money. And so he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Now we really don't know for sure what prompted Judas to do this. We don't really know for sure what his motive is. There's much speculation on this. Different gospels give different suspicions. Different examples of what may have been. Mark doesn't say here. He doesn't tell us. But regardless of specifically what the motivation was, we do know one thing. We do know that Judas's attributed value was very different than that woman's. Two very different attributed values of who Jesus was in their lives. Very different answers to the question, who do you say that I am? Did you answer that by saying Messiah? By saying Savior? Like the woman perhaps saying, you are my king? And then giving all that she has to him, anointing him in the manner of a sacred king. And answer that question, Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end. Driven by greed, by nationalistic fervor, or maybe something else. But regardless of what it was, he was serving his own purposes in his actions. He did not value Jesus as a king. But instead, he sold him for 30 pieces of silver, which is the same price as a slave. A woman showing an act of devotion, proclaiming Jesus as king. Where Judas 
selling him for the price of a slave to serve his own ends. So as I close today, I ask you to consider that question. Who do you say that I am? As you answer that, thinking of Jesus, you, you might go, the answer was, well, well he was a teacher. I, I think Jesus is just a man of history. I, I, I might, some people may even think Jesus is simply a figment of our imagination. Some people, if they're really honest, they might look at it and say, well, he's here to serve my needs. Or perhaps, and, and I pray that we would all come to a point where we could say, no, he's my Lord and he's my Savior. If we honestly answer that question, here's the power of it. It reveals our attributed value of Jesus. And once we've determined our attributed value, we will see the driving force behind our responses and our actions in light of him. Now, if you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff and, and you're not comfortable with the idea of being all in, if that's where you are right now, then I'm glad you're here with us. I'm glad we have the opportunity to continue walking with you and hopefully to help you reveal and understand Jesus' love and his place in your life. But if you are here and you do claim Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, I encourage you to keep reading the rest of that passage where he asks the question, who do you say I am? It's found in the Gospel of Luke. Where he talks then about the need to, in light of that response, to take up our cross daily and to follow him. And I want to leave you with a quote from a person named Kyle Adelman who wrote a book, Fan, or Not a Fan. A book called Not a Fan that provides some insight on what we've been focusing upon here today. Where he says this, in light of what it would look like to be all in with Jesus. He says, well, it might mean spending your lunch hours serving food to the homeless at a shelter down the street from your office. It may mean the next time you talk to a stranger or the next time you talk to your neighbor, instead of playing it safe and keeping comfortable, you bring Jesus into the conversation. It may mean that your vacation plans have to change. Instead of taking your kids to Disneyland this year, you need to take them to the Dominican Republic and volunteer in a feeding center where hundreds of kids come each day for their only meal. Or it may mean walking by that empty room in your house and asking God if there's an orphan child in another country who should be sleeping in that bed. The examples are endless of what it could mean. But in the week ahead, I want to encourage you to look at all that God has placed in your hands and consider your question. What could I do? What could you do with that? So that Jesus would respond and say, you did what you could. Consider how you will use this moment, this talent, this resource. Consider how you will use this in the service of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are getting ever closer to that Easter Sunday. That day when we will celebrate the finality of our salvation made possible through Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that that is not simply where it stops, but that is, that is the beginning of the empowering for us to go out and see how we can live more powerfully for you. God, I pray that as we look at, at how you richly blessed each of us this week, that we will ponder that question of how we can use it for your purposes, how we can serve you with it, how we can find tangible examples that reveal the truth that when we answer the question, who you are to us, you are the immeasurably precious Lord and Savior of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.